I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. And as you're finding your way there, I have to say it's been a long but I trust profitable time that we've spent in this wonderful book of Ecclesiastes. We are coming down the home stretch. Next Lord's Day, we begin the last section of this book, the final word on the matter from the sage himself, which we'll spend most likely at least two weeks opening up and learning, maybe a little more, but we are almost finished. This morning, however, we finish a section on what we're calling the characteristics of the new life, which the sage has inserted with good reason. It it makes all the sense in the world that after exposing the fleeting and profitable or profitless life, I should say, that is born from under the sun, we should contrast it with the profitable life that is born from above the sun, a life that, well, Jesus promises, though it dies, it will live. And as we pointed out, it is the sage's word that we are taking at face value. And when we do and we live them out, we live them out not just for our benefit, but also for the benefit of unsaved family, friends, and anyone else in our circle, uh, circles of life who see the word displayed in us, displayed in living color. So don't forget that as we go through this last section. Now, this last section, we received his command to be bold and then joyful here in uh, chapter 12. He presents us uh, with another command, and that is to be godly. Godliness is the last in the triad of uh, foundational characteristics that he highlights. And once again, we find the important biblical principle here of living life in light of the end. It's a principle we've seen uh, often, but certainly the last of these, uh, in this section, these, these three characteristics, it's been very prominent living life now in light of the end. The sage calls for godliness in the new life that he give, that God gives, the life that pleases him, uh, and what to us Christians we would call the new life in Christ. And there are many reasons, of course, that we would live this godly life. Certainly we can and should. That's one reason. Also, it is really now part of our nature to do so. We might also say that genuine Christians desire to live this way, and it's, uh, it's the obedient way to live, and therefore the right way to live, and of course God commands us to. But our text gives another reason, another reason we ought to live this godly life, and that's this, there will come a day when we will not be able to live it any longer. Life is short. It's fleeting, even in its redeemed state, and the end will come soon enough. So we live in light of that end as well. And I have captured the thrust of these verses for you. I published it in the bulletin. You'll see the outline there. The thrust I've put in these words, be godly in your new life that God created for you before your end of life stage the worst possible stage where nothing is pleasurable because the body is dying and when expired reveals just how fleeting it is. 
So let's consider this as we move our way through verses 1 through 8. The sage commands us in verse 1, be godly in your new life that God created before you before your end of life stage. And he says it this way, remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years approach when you will say, I have no pleasure in them. (laughs) Well, the end that the sage uh, speaks of here is not heaven. No, it's not heaven. We might assume that heaven is the next logical step for those of us who are in Christ the moment we die. And we would be right. Paul does say to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It's a great promise. And we have had occasion, I think, many times already to, to address our great heavenly inheritance that awaits us, that glorious time when we are face-to-face with Christ, where we will offer our investment to him and reap our reward. <clears throat> uh, this is our eternal gain. And it motivates us to live as if everything in life matters. Because in this new life, everything does matter. But verse 1 points us really in in another direction. To be precise, it, it points us in a direction of what hospice workers and palliative caregivers call the end of life stage. It's the last and worst stage of life. The body starts to die within days, sometimes months. And when a person begins actively dying in this stage, the body shuts down and death is moments away. The sage commands us then to remember God before we enter this stage of life because when we do, we won't be able to remember our Creator the way that he calls us to here. We find an extended word on this time in verses 2 to 4, then again in verse 5, and then a third time in verses 6 and 7. So before we examine this stage and all of these, these three sections, which, by the way, is out of our control, this stage is very much out of our control, let's pay attention to what is in our control and is our responsibility, and that is be godly. Be godly. Whenever the Bible commands us to do something, God makes that something our responsibility. Prayer, encouraging one another, repenting of your sin, loving your enemy, don't giving the de- uh, not giving the devil a foothold, and so on. God makes it our responsibility to be godly. So what does it mean to be godly? Well, according to the text or the context, it means really this, to remember God as we live out our lives. I want to say a little bit about remembrance. Remember is one of those, I would say, all-inclusive terms in the Bible, very pregnant with meaning. It captures the essence of the new life, the redeemed life, much in the same way as the word worship does and rejoice and fearing God, and loving God more than anything else. Those are all-inclusive words, very pregnant with meaning, rich, all-encompassing. Now, we don't have time here to get into what I would call a theology of remembrance, but suffice it to say that it captures very, very adequately the proper 
the, the, the proper life of holiness. So let me get into this a little bit. What does it mean specifically or practically to remember God? Well, if we remember God, we live with God in mind. We regard him above all else. We fear him more than anything else. The Bible communicates this in so many different ways. Moses urged God's people in Deuteronomy 10, verse 20, cling to him. And in, verse, uh, in chapter 30, verse 20, hold close to him. Proverbs 3, 6 says, acknowledge God in all your ways. Jesus said, take up your cross daily and follow me. Paul communicated it in various ways. In everything by prayer and pleading with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Or we may make it our ambition in life to please God. And this, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. To remember God, then, is all of these things. It is to love him, serve him, depend upon him through prayer, revel and rejoice in him. It means being obedient to his commands and principles. You see how all-encompassing a word remember is. Remembering is also an action word. Very much so. We have to apply ourselves to remember God in our walk. Just as you do important events in your life. I think you know what I'm talking about. You take certain concrete measures to remember important things. You clear your calendar. You set your alarm. You make reservations. You prepare food. You buy a proper outfit. We all have our special ways of making sure that we don't forget what's most important to us. And since God is the most important relationship we have, we should be the most diligent in not forgetting him and in his ways in all that we do. So remembering God, therefore, is our responsibility. I said that a moment ago, but let me explain it now a little bit more in detail Maybe you find it a bit odd, even silly, to talk about remembering God as a responsibility, as if I would ever forget God. Well, not so fast. If we aren't availing ourselves and devoting ourselves to what we call the ordinary means of grace, we can become forgetful even to a sinful degree. The ordinary means of grace are means that God has provided for the maintenance of our faith, such as prayer, Bible study, the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, church discipline, one anothering, biblical counseling. There are, these are God-appointed means that the Holy Spirit empowers to point us to Christ and to sustain and nurture our union with him. If we become lax in them, well, we lose our spiritual edge. We become vulnerable to temptations, more susceptible to Satan's schemings. Essentially, we forget ourselves and to whom we belong. And we wander from sound, orthodox faith, like we've seen so many in the body of Christ at large do in recent pasts, in the recent past. Look, don't think it won't happen to you. 
The less time you spend in spiritual maintenance and upkeep, the less sharp you'll be in your execution of the faith and the more prone you'll be to wander. When are the most likely times to forget God? That's actually a good question. There are certain contexts in which we are more likely to disregard God. They're more conducive to forgetting. I'll pick on just one, perhaps the most likely, and that is when things are really going well for us, season of peace and prosperity, a problem-free, carefree time when all seems to be as it should be. Now, they don't come very often, but when they do, they can be just as dangerous for us as severe debilitating trials. How so? Well, in prosperous times, we tend to ease up our fight of the good fight. We slow down our fast pace in the race of faith, really to a slow jog so we can maybe enjoy the scenery on the sidelines and we, instead of being fixed on the prize ahead of us, we let our guard down and and that's when we, we become easy targets for the evil one. We find several times, actually in the book of Deuteronomy, God warning Israel just before the nation was to, to go and take possession of the land flowing with milk and honey and prosperity, not to forget him. He says it many times over in the book. And Moses explains what remembering is in these contexts. These were to... They were to recall God's great acts of saving grace in their lives, his track record of faithfulness, how he sustained them in their wilderness, even to the point of physically reacting them in ceremony, so that the youngest generations would be able to relate to those who had witnessed these events firsthand. More than this, remembering God almost meant to keep his word, or also meant rather to keep his word that he delivered to them to keep and maintain the covenant that he cut with them by obeying all that he commanded them to do. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 32 and 33. We read this, So you shall be careful to do just as the Lord your God has commanded you, and you shall not turn aside to the right or to the left. You shall walk entirely in the way which the Lord your God has commanded you, so that you may live and that it may be well for you, and that you may prolong your days in the land which you will possess. I think you get the idea how deliberate in their obedience they were to be in remembering God as they went. And the fact that this holy activity calls for the utmost diligence and attention shows us just how easy it was to fail in living their faith in the world. Let me give you an idea of where you can wind up when you're not aggressively applying God's ordinary means of grace from God's warning in Deuteronomy 8 in verses 11 to 17. Listen very carefully. God says, be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God by failing to keep his commandments, his ordinances, and his statutes, which I'm commanding you today. Otherwise, when you eat and are, and are satisfied and, and you build good houses and live in them, and when your herds and your flocks increase, 
your silver and gold increase and everything that you have increases, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He who led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and its thirsty ground where there was no water. <clears throat> he who brought water to you out of the rock of flint. In the wilderness it was he who fed you manna which your fathers did not know in order to humble you and in order to put you to the test to do good for you in the end. Otherwise, you may say in your heart, my power and strength of my hands made this wealth. Did you catch that last sentence? It is astounding to think that Israel could ever believe that their secured and prosperous position was by their own hand especially when they literally saw God secure all that for them. Now, they sure, they, there's surely a measure then of deception that enters our hearts when we forget God, when, our, when, when our, his word goes out of our minds. The late Herb Ehrenstein, Bible answer man for Songtime Ministries, he used to say, whenever Christians come to me overwhelmed with problems, the first question I ask them is, when was the last time you read your Bible? End quote. <clears throat> now that question is more profound than you might think. When Jesus' truth is not abiding in us, our minds get cloudy. And frankly, we make stupid mistakes, wrong decisions, and we become almost self-deceived in crediting ourselves and our prosperity to our own hand. Now this state is every bit as deceptive as it is dangerous. In Deuteronomy 7, 25, God warns Israel that if they wander away from him and into idolatry, they would become trapped by the very idols they worship. That's what he says. In, verse, in chapter 9, verse 16, God says that it's through idolatry that they will quickly turn aside from his way. Hmm. Trapped, turned aside. Interesting choice of words that God uses. Very true. The time to remember the Lord, then, beloved, is now and always. Now and always, throughout this wonderful new life that he's created for you. Verse 1 says, all the days of your youth. And it's at this time that I want to clarify something in the text. <clears throat> in verse 1, there are, there are some commentaries in Ecclesiastes that that believe that the time to remember the Lord is literally during one's youth because it's so fleeting. You won't be young forever, they say. But let me give you at least five reasons why I think that view is a mistake and that the sage is actually referring not to youth but figuratively to our new redeemed life that God gave, the ideal, the prime of life. All right? First reason is this. The sage commanded us just a few short verses ago in chapter 11, verse 8, if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. And that's pretty clear. All means all here in this particular verse. The second reason is this. If we cannot restrict all, then, in 11.8, to mean just one's youth or prime of life, then the days of one's young manhood in verse 9 
which cannot be literal either, since that would contradict verse 8, is also figurative for the ideal life, which is the new redeemed life that God gives. The third reason is this. The all of 11.8 would have to include old age, since it makes no sense that young believers would be excused from their God-given responsibilities of the new life the moment they enter old age. Now, there's no question that we'll live out our God-given responsibilities different from one stage of life to the next, no question, but godliness always remains our goal right up to the end of time, right up to the time we take our last breath. And let's not be like so many in the church today who underestimate what Christians can accomplish in their old age. Isaac blessed his sons even though at that time he was what we would call legally blind. I find it interesting that when God appeared to Moses and commissioned him for the task, and Moses gave God every possible excuse he could think of for not accepting, I'm a nobody, I'm not anybody special, I'm not convincing enough, I'm not a great orator. He never said, I'm too old. Huh. Moses was 80 when he led Israel out of Egypt and started his shepherding responsibilities. He died 40 years later. Simeon was old when he blessed the Christ child. The Apostle John was at least in his 80s and quite possibly 90 when he received the vision for and wrote the book of Revelation. Therefore, to suggest that verse 1 commands youth to remember God before and un- or until they reach old age, as if old age exempts one from godly living, makes absolutely no sense. If, however, this, and this is my fourth reason, youth or the prime of life is figurative for the prime life, the ideal life, which is the new life that God gives, then it makes perfect sense that the command is to those who have received this new life, who have entered into a covenant relationship with God. They're the ones that the sage addresses in 12.1, our verse. The days of your youth are really figurative here for the days spent in covenant relationship with God. And fifth and last, in the wording, remember the Lord before evil days come, you ought to know that the word before is a translation of the Hebrew preposition that carries the idea of up to or until. So the command to remember God is to be kept up to these evil days, when remembering won't be possible any longer. If that is the case, then the days of old age would make no sense, since old age is not bad, and certainly not, as we've already argued, a time when godliness stops. I can tell you that all my mentors were World War II vets, whom I enjoyed long relationships with well into their 80s and one into his 90s. And they were to me models of living, uh, living models of godliness. So these evil days in which a person finds no more pleasure has to refer to what I am calling the end-of-life stage that I mentioned a moment ago. 
We're responsible, beloved, to be godly right up to and until the end of life stage when we're physically and mentally incapable of doing so anymore. Now let me just take a a moment to, to detail this end of life. Actually, a few moments. The sage devotes actually most of the passage to describing it, so it's important. And after you read and understand it, I trust you'll agree with my interpretation. This stage of life is the worst possible stage in life because nothing is pleasurable when the body is dying. So, I want to preface our examination of verses 2 to 5, also verse 5, uh, verse um, 2 to 4, verse 5, and verses 6 and 7, three sections, by saying that there's no universal agreement among Old Testament scholars as to the precise meaning of these contexts or these verses. In other words, these verses pose a great challenge to any Bible expositor. So I'm not claiming to have the, the last word here, but I will say that after wrestling with them a good long time, I'm convinced, and, and I agree, with a few who see it as an allegory for this particular stage of life that I have identified as the end of life, an allegory. Now, what's an allegory? Well, it's a story, or a poem in this case, that has hidden meaning and expresses that hidden meaning in highly symbolic language, which is what we find here. In fact, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, it's a good example. It's not a story of a pioneer who makes a trek through a world of fantasy on his way to some fairy tale city. Rather, it's about the Christian life and its struggles and temptations along the way. Now, once you know this, you can, you can see it clearly. So like Pilgrim's Progress, the sage uses a, a dilapidated house to describe the shutting down of the body and death. And then he does it two more times using other figures. So let me assure you, many of these figures are used for parts of the body in other places of the Old Testament. So it's not a far-fetched interpretation, as it may seem. So let's consider verses 2 to 4 and the dilapidated house. Here's how the text reads, governed by the command in verse 1. We are to remember our Creator before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened. The clouds return after the rain. On the day that the watchmen of the house tremble and the strong men are bent over, the grinders stop working because they are few, and those who look through windows grow dim, and the doors of the street are shut, and the sound of the grinding mill is low, and one will arise at the sound of the bird, and all the daughters of the song will sing softly. What is this all about? It's an allegorical poem, as I say, and each line in the item is, as I say, a representation of some aspect of a man in the stage of dying, end of life stage. So with that in mind, here we go. The trembling watchman of the house represents his shaking hands. The strong men who are bent over, his legs that are now bowed and cannot bear his weight. The dwindling amount of servants in the kitchen who grind weed at the mill, his inability to grind his food without teeth. Those who peer through the windows dimly, his bad eyesight. 
the door shut in the streets, his mouth now shut and difficulty swallowing. The low sound of the mill in the kitchen, the sound of gumming his food. And his rising early with the lark speaks to his insomnia. And the fading daughters of singing, which is really the melody of song, his weak and feeble voice. Now in verse 5, the sage switches to agricultural imagery. He says, furthermore, people are afraid of a high place and terrors on the road. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and the caper berry is ineffective, for man goes to his eternal home while the mourners move around in the street. So, the dying now finds it hard to breathe, like the one who suffers from acrophobia and loses his breath at great heights. He's also stiff and unable to move, like the one who is scared stiff from certain terrors in the road. Like the almond tree that has passed its fruit-bearing season, the dying has passed the time of usefulness. His time has run out. And just as the bloated locust who has consumed all the yield of the fields, death has eaten up all the years of this man's life. There's none left now. The ineffectiveness of the caperberry to impart vitality and health to the body represents the man's strength that has drained out of his body at this time. The dying person goes to the grave, his eternal home, and the mourners do their part. Finally, we come to the third depiction of the end of life in metaphorical language in verses 6 and 7. He starts by repeating his command to his son, those whom he teaches, and to us, his readers, by extension, to remember God while we're still of sound mind and body. Be godly, he tells us, till your dying day when life proves fleeting. Here now his figurative depiction of the man actively dying. Remember your creator before the silver cord is broken and the golden bowl is crushed. The pitcher by the spring is shattered and the wheel at the cistern is crushed. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was and the spirit will return to God who gave it. The snapped silver cord is thought to be the spinal cord, and the reference is to the nervous system shutting down. The golden bowl is of a lamp that is crushed and no longer gives light, symbolizing the brain that no longer recalls anything. The pitcher that carries water up from the well that is shattered represents the heart, and the broken wheel at the cistern that no longer lifts the pitcher to draw life-sustaining water refers to the heart ceasing to pump blood through the body. Now the body goes into the ground, and it becomes dust, and the life breath goes back to God who gave it. This picture of death and dying is such a pathetic stage of life. To think that no matter who you are, both rich, poor, both the somebodies and the nobodies of this world, no matter what you've accomplished, all go to the grave alone and with nothing. Hence the sage's last word, all is fleeting. 
How silly it is that anyone would ever want to live for this life. A question that came to my mind, maybe it's come to yours, after studying this text, after reading three sections, all an extended word on death and dying, the question is, why give such an extended word on death? Why belabor this? The sage draws our attention to death three times, impressing upon our minds the finality and unpleasantness of end of life, and with different figures that are meant to help us feel as much as possible the, the uncomfortability of the breakdown of the body. Well, I think one reason is obviously to support what he's been saying about life under the sun since the start of the book, that is, that life is fleeting. Remember, we, we, need, to, we need to ask people in this world who have life under the sun why they would, why would they would ever want to invest in a life that's so fleeting. He deliberately repeats the refrain, vanity of vanities, which we know to mean fleeting in verse 8. It's noteworthy that he opened the book back in chapter 1, verse 2, with the same phrase, And by mentioning it here, he sandwiches everything he has to say about life under the sun with these two bookend verses. Life is fleeting. It's a vapor. It's over before you know it. And it doesn't end well. It's unpleasant. It's uncomfortable. I believe, however, that there's another reason for his extended word on death and dying. And it's this, it is a great way for him to extend the hope that comes with life that is born from above the sun. Let me explain that. Up until now, I have refrained from commenting on the fact that the sage uses the title creator for God. Do you see it there? That title is significant since out of 12 chapters in this book, the sage uses it only here, in the beginning of this text and at the end of this text, a text on dying. Now, why here? Why now? I find, I find it odd that the commentaries are rather silent on this, but to me, this is central to understanding the text. It really jumped right out at me. And the first thing I'll say about it is that it is quite natural to refer to God as the creator when talking about life. Wouldn't you agree? The sage says to remember our creator as we live. Now that makes sense. God created life for his glory and for our enjoyment. So far, so good. But this context is also about death and dying. And it's ironic that the sage should reference the creator in that context where life is being, well, uncreated until it turns back to dust. But actually, the appearance here of creator makes perfect sense. Let me explain. We know, as the sage did and as his audience did, that man sinned and consequently ruined this life. 
Because of sin, life would never be what God intended it to be in a fallen state under heaven. Never. Man would die, and the length of his days would be no more than 80, 90, or 100 short years on this earth. But death, you see, is a testimony to God's justice, to the Creator's justice. We've made the argument several times before in this book that the fallen world runs according to the Creator's will. It fell into into ruin because God would not wink at sin. He couldn't have given Adam a pass. No, he decreed that the wages of sin must be death. Death of the body and death of the soul. Adam died when he sinned against God. Now the fate of every life that comes into this world by God's decree is death. And the body will reveal the justice of the creator as it slowly is uncreated and expires. But that's not the last word here. The last thing I'll say about the mention of the creator in this context is the fact that God recreated life anew by his mercy in the redemptive act of Messiah. The promise to all the Old Testament saints and the realization to all of us on the other side of the cross. Our creator has come to our rescue by recreating us anew in the image of his dear son with the capacity to live this new life the way God intended life to be lived originally. And though the body will still die and go into the ground, it, it hasn't yet been redeemed, remember. We ourselves go to be with our Creator to enjoy life to the fullest with Him in glory. Given the late date of this book, which would have been written after the, the book or the time of Daniel, or concurrent with it, Daniel, who talked about resurrection, by the way. I have no doubt that the sage understood this and meant this. So this new life, this sanctified life that is born from above the sun, is the prime life, the ideal life that we can and must live to the glory of God until our days of this life under the sun run out. And I see here in the short allegorical text of 12, 1 through 8, a clear presentation of the gospel. In short, the creator created life. Man ruined it. He recreated us with new life. And we must live this life in a godly way. That's it. The New Testament would confirm this, of course. There are many passages we could go to, but we look at one particular and it was the one that we read for our scripture reading this morning Colossians 3 verses 8 to 10 as I bring our study to a close I do want to confirm by the New Testament and by this passage specifically our principle that that we're to be godly in our new life that God has created for us before we enter the end of life stage the worst possible stage where nothing is pleasurable Because the body is dying and, when expired, reveals just how fleeting it is. 
Our scripture reading, as I point, pointed out, Colossians 3, 1 to 11, is a powerful passage about godly realities of the new life in Christ that we are to enjoy and live if we've been spiritually raised from the depraved and, and, and dead life of the fall. And Paul says in verse 3 that, that, we, were, uh, that we have died uh, with Christ and our life is hidden with Christ in God. That's verse 3. The life that God condemned because of the fall is not our life anymore then. We died to that and we've risen with Christ to a new life. And the extended promise to us comes in verse 4, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. And this is our, our glorious and wonderful certainty. But until that sweet day when our bodies, which will die, are resurrected from the grave, we must live godly. And Paul says it this way in verses 5 to 10. Therefore, Treat the parts of your earthly body as dead to sin, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also walked when you were living in them. But now you also rid yourself of all of them, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you stripped off the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created it. In short, beloved, God created life. We ruined it. He recreated us anew with new life. Therefore, be godly. And our God and Father,